Lesson 8 for May 13 through to 18. Jesus in the Writings of Peter. Sabbath afternoon, May 13. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to open your word again, and we've learnt so much from these books of First and Second Peter. And as we continue to read, as we continue to study, as we continue to let your Holy Spirit work through your word, we pray that not only will our lives be changed, but we may have a more vigorous and open hope of what lies before us, that we may have trust in Jesus as our Saviour and as our Redeemer. We pray in his dear name. Amen. Our memory text for this week is First Peter chapter 2 and verse 24 who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. Let's hear that again, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 24. Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. As we've studied 1 Peter... It should be clear by now that regardless of the context and whatever the specific issues he's addressing, Peter's focus was on Jesus. Jesus permeates all that he writes. He's the golden thread woven through the letter. From the first line where Peter says that he is an apostle, or one sent, of Jesus Christ, until the last when he writes, Peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 14, Jesus is his key theme. And in this epistle he talks about Jesus dying as our sacrifice. He talks about the great suffering that Jesus went through and uses Jesus' example in that suffering as a model for us. He talks about the resurrection of Jesus and what it means to us. In addition, he talks about Jesus not only as the Messiah, the Christos, the Anointed One, but about Jesus as the Divine Messiah. That is, we see in First Peter more evidence of the divine nature of Jesus. He was God himself who came in human flesh and who lived and died so that we can have the hope and promise of eternal life. This week, we will go back through First Peter and look more closely at what it reveals about Jesus. Sunday, May 14, Jesus, Our Sacrifice. An overarching theme of the Bible, maybe even the overarching theme, is that of God's work in saving fallen humanity. From the fall of Adam and Eve in Genesis to the fall of Babylon in Revelation, Scripture in one way or another reveals the work of God in seeking to save that which was lost, as it says in Luke 19.10. And this theme is revealed in Peter's letters as well. Question. Read First Peter one eighteen and nineteen and Colossians one thirteen and fourteen. What does it mean to be redeemed? And what does blood have to do with redemption? 
First of all, First Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. And Colossians 1, 13 and 14. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. First Peter 1 verses 18 and 19 describes the significance of the death of Jesus this way. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish, and without spot. There are two key images in these words, redemption and animal sacrifice. Redemption is used in the Bible in several ways. For example, the firstborn donkey, which could not be sacrificed, and the firstborn son in Exodus 34, 19 and 20, were redeemed by the sacrifice of a substitute lamb. Money could be used to buy back or redeem items that had been sold because of poverty in Leviticus 25. Most important, a slave could be redeemed in Leviticus 25 as well. First Peter informs readers that the cost of buying them back or redeeming from their futile ways inherited from your fathers, in verse 18, was nothing less than the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish, in verse 19. The lamb image, of course, evokes the concept of animal sacrifice. Peter thus likens Christ's death to that of a sacrificial animal in the Hebrew Bible. A sinner brought a sheep without blemish to the sanctuary. The sinner then laid his hands on the animal. The animal was slaughtered and some of its blood was smeared on the altar. The rest was poured at the base. In Leviticus chapter 4 we read this. The death of the sacrificial animal provided atonement for the one who offered the sacrifice. Peter is saying that Jesus died in our place and that his death redeemed us from our former lives and the doom that would otherwise be ours. So to finish the day, what does the fact that our hope of salvation exists only in a substitute punished in our place teach us about our utter dependence upon God? Monday, May 15, The Passion of Christ Christians often talk about the Passion of Christ. The word passion comes from a Greek verb that means to suffer, and the phrase, the Passion of Christ, usually refers to what Jesus suffered in the final period of his life, beginning with the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Peter, too, dwells on the theme of Christ's suffering in those last days. Question Read First Peter chapter two verses twenty one through to twenty five and Isaiah fifty three one to twelve. What do they tell us about what Jesus suffered on our behalf? First of all, first Peter chapter two verse twenty one. 
For as to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return, when he suffered he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. And Isaiah chapter 53, verses 1 to 12. Who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten, by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken, and they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him, He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labour of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. There is particular significance to the suffering of Jesus. He bore, as it says in 1 Peter 2.24, our sins in his own body on the tree, a reference to the cross, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness. Sin brings death, as we read in Romans 5.12. As sinners, we deserve to die, yet the perfect Jesus, who had no guile on his lips, died in our place. In that exchange, we have the plan of salvation. Question. Read Isaiah 53, 1-12 again. What did the text say that Jesus suffered as he worked out the plan of salvation in our behalf? What does this tell us about the character of God? Isaiah chapter 53, beginning at verse 1. Who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? 
for he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken, and they made his grave with the wicked. But with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labour of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Ellen White writes in The Desire of Ages, page 753, Satan, with his fierce temptations, wrung the heart of Jesus. The Saviour could not see through the portals of the tomb. Hope did not present to him his coming forth from the grave a conqueror, or tell him of the Father's acceptance of the sacrifice. He feared that sin was so offensive to God that their separation was to be eternal. Christ felt the anguish which the sinner will feel when mercy shall no longer plead for the guilty race. It was the sense of sin bringing the Father's wrath upon him as man's substitute that made the cup he drank so bitter and broke the heart of the Son of God. And so to finish today, what should our response be to what Christ has endured for us? How are we to follow his example, as in 1 Peter 2.21 says? And that reads... For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Tuesday, May 16, The Resurrection of Jesus Question. Read 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 and 21. 1 Peter 3, verse 21. John eleven twenty-five, Philippians 3, verses 10 and 11. And Revelation 20, verse 6. To what great hope are these texts pointing 
And what does it mean to us? First of all, First Peter chapter 1 and verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his abundant mercy, has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. And verse 21. Who, through him, believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. And First Peter chapter 3, verse 21. There is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And John 11.25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes on me, though he may die, he shall live. And Philippians 3, 10 and 11, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. And Revelation 20, verse 6, blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him. A thousand years. As we've already seen, First Peter is addressed to those who are suffering because of their belief in Jesus. It is particularly appropriate, then, that right at the beginning of his letter, Peter directs his readers' attention to the hope that awaits them. As he says, the hope of a Christian is a living hope, precisely because it is a hope that rests on the resurrection of Jesus. Because of Jesus' resurrection, Christians can look forward to an inheritance in heaven that will not perish or fade. In other words, no matter how bad things become, think about what awaits us when it is all over. Indeed, Jesus' resurrection from the dead is a guarantee that we also can be raised. As Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians fifteen seventeen, "...and if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain." Ye are yet in your sins. But because Jesus has been raised from the dead, he has shown that he has the power to conquer death itself. Thus, the Christian hope finds its basis in the historical event of Christ's resurrection. His resurrection is the foundation of ours at the end of time. Where would we be without that hope and promise? Everything that Christ did for us culminates in the promise of the resurrection. Without that, what hope do we have? Especially because we know that contrary to popular Christian belief, the dead are in an unconscious sleep in the grave. As Ellen White writes in Desire of Ages, page 787, To the Christian, death is but a sleep, a moment of silence and darkness. The life is hid with Christ in God, and when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. At his second coming, all the precious dead shall hear his voice, and shall come forth to glorious, immortal life. And so to finish today, think about the apparent finality of death. It's so harsh, so unforgiving, and so real. 
Why then is the promise of the resurrection so important to our faith and to everything we believe in and hope for? Wednesday, May 17, Jesus as the Messiah. As we saw earlier, one of the crucial turning points in Jesus' earthly ministry was when, in response to a question about who he was, Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That was Matthew 16, 16. The word Christ, or Christos in Greek, means the anointed, the Messiah. In Hebrew, it is Messiah. It came from a root word that means to anoint, and it was used in various contexts in the Old Testament. It was even used in one place to point to a pagan king, Cyrus, as we read in Isaiah 45 verse 1. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him, and loose the armour of kings, to open before him the double doors, so that the gates will not be shut. Thus, when Peter called Jesus the Christ, he was using a word that expresses an ideal derived from the Hebrew Scriptures. Question. Read the following text from the Old Testament that use the word Messiah or anointed. What does the context teach us about what it means? How might Peter have understood what it meant when he called Jesus the Messiah? First of all, Psalm 2 and verse 2, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And Psalm 18 verse 50, great deliverance he gives to his king and shows mercy to his anointed, to David and his descendants for evermore. And Daniel 9.25 Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. The street shall be built again, and the wall, even in troublesome times. And First Samuel chapter 24 verse 6 And I said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. And Isaiah 45 verse 1, Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him, and loose the armour of kings, to open before him the double doors, so that the gates will not be shut. Though Peter had been inspired by the Lord to declare Jesus as the Messiah, there's no question that he didn't fully understand what this meant. He didn't understand who exactly the Messiah was, what he was to accomplish, and perhaps most important, how he would accomplish it. In that lack of understanding, Peter was not alone. There were many different ideas in Israel about the Messiah, In and of themselves, the use of the word Messiah or anointed in the above text don't present a full picture, however much they might foreshadow what the Messiah would ultimately be and do. 
John 7.40 reveals some of what was expected of the Messiah. He would be descended from David, from the town of Bethlehem, as uh, is written in Isaiah 11 and from Micah chapter 5. That part they got right. In the popular imagination, however, a Messiah from the line of David would do what David did, defeat the enemies of the Jews. What no one expected was a Messiah who would be crucified by the Romans. Of course, by the time he wrote his epistles, Peter more clearly understood Jesus as the Messiah. He is called Jesus Christ 15 times in First and Second Peter, and all that he would accomplish for humanity. Thursday, May 18, Jesus, the Divine Messiah. Peter knew not only that Jesus was the Messiah, but that he was the Lord as well. That is, by the time of these epistles, Peter knew that the Messiah was God himself. Though the title Lord can have a secular meaning, the term also can be a clear reference to divinity. In 1 Peter 1 and verse 3, and Second Peter 1, verses 8, 14, and 16, Peter is referring to Jesus the Messiah, the Christ, as the Lord, as God himself. Let's look at that. First Peter 1, 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his abundant mercy, has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And Second Peter, chapter 1, and verse 8, For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And verse 12, For this reason I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right, as long as I am in this tent, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. And verse 16, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Like other writers in the New Testament, Peter describes the relationship between Jesus and God with the words Father and Son. For example, in First Peter 1 and verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is described as the beloved Son in Second Peter 1 and verse 17. And that reads, for he received from God the Father honour and glory, when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And some of Jesus' authority as Lord and his heavenly status comes from this special relationship that he has with God the Father. Question. 
read Second Peter 1 verse 1, John 1 verse 1 and John 20 verse 28, what do these texts tell us about the divinity of Jesus? Second Peter 1 1, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have a obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. John 1, one In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And John 20, verse 28. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Second Peter one one says, Our God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. In the original Greek, the same definite article that is the is used for both God and Saviour. Grammatically, this means that both God and Saviour are used of Jesus. Second Peter 1 1 then stands as one of the very clear indications in the New Testament of the full divinity of Jesus. As the early Christians struggled to understand Jesus, they gradually put the evidence of the New Testament together. In the writings of Peter, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are distinct. For example, Father and Son in 1 Peter 1 and 2 Peter 1, Holy Spirit in 1 Peter 1 verse 12 and 2 Peter 1 verse 21, as indeed they are in the rest of the New Testament. Yet, at the same time, Jesus is portrayed as fully divine, as is the Holy Spirit. Over time, and after much discussion, the Church developed the doctrine of the Trinity to explain as well as possible the divine mystery of the Godhead. Seventh-day Adventists include the doctrine of the Trinity as one of their 28 fundamental beliefs. Thus, we see in Peter a clear depiction of Jesus, not only as the Messiah, but as God himself. So to finish today. When you think about the life and death of Jesus and then realise that he was God, what does this tell you about the kind of God we serve and why we should love and trust him? Bring your answer to class on Sabbath. Friday, May 19. The following is a quote from the Seventh-day Adventist Bible Commentary, Volume 12, page 165. It seems logical to begin with Messiah, since the Christian Church owes its name to the Greek equivalent Christos, the Anointed One. The Hebrew word relates to the Deliverer figure whom the Jews awaited and who would be God's agent in the inauguration of a new age for God's people. Both the Hebrew and the Greek terms are derived from roots meaning to anoint. Evidently, by calling him Christ, the New Testament writers regarded Jesus as specially set aside for a particular task. The title Christos occurs more than 500 times in the New Testament. Although there are more than one concept of messiahship among Jesus' contemporaries, it is generally recognised that by the first century, Jews had come to look on the Messiah as someone in a special relationship with God. He would usher in the end of the age when the kingdom of God would be established. He was the one through whom God would break through into history for the deliverance of his people. 
Jesus accepted the title Messiah but did not encourage its use, for the term carried political overtones that made its use difficult. Though reluctant to avail himself of it in public to describe his mission, Jesus rebuked neither Peter in Matthew 16 nor the Samaritan woman in John 4 for using it. He knew himself to be the Messiah, as seen in Mark's report of Jesus' words about giving one of his disciples a cup of water because you bear the name of Christ in Mark 9.14. End of quote. And that brings us to our discussion questions, the three of them, this week. 1. Read Isaiah 53, 1-12. According to this passage, what has Jesus done for us? Write down the specifics of what he has done on our behalf. In what ways can we clearly see in these verses the idea of Jesus as our substitute? Why do we need him as our substitute? Isaiah 53, beginning at verse 1. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form of comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living." For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labour of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Question 2. Throughout history, some have used the biblical promise of an afterlife to help keep people oppressed. Well, yes, your life is hard here and now, but just focus on what God has promised for us when Jesus returns. Because this truth taught in the word of God has been abused, many reject the Christian notice of an afterlife. Instead, they see it merely as a ploy by some people to oppress others. How would you respond to that charge? And question three. In class, go over your answers to Thursday's question about Christ's divinity and what it tells us about the character of God. Why is his divinity and what it does reveal about God 
such good news. Inside Story Our mission story this week is God is a Faithful Husband, Part 3, and it's the final part. Through the years, God has given me special evidence of His love. Long before I married, I heard a young man play the piano. I was so impressed, I told God that if I had children, I would want them to learn to play the piano for His glory. God answered that prayer. My daughter is truly a gifted musician. I could never afford piano lessons, but she has a natural musical ability. She has a friend who owns a piano, and when she visited their home, they allowed her to play. She has never had a formal piano lesson, but God has been her teacher. She plays beautifully and has been recognised nationally for her playing. And best of all, she gives God the glory. She plays for the church, and many people come to the church just to hear her play. I never had enough money to save for an emergency. Then one day, my son was riding a bicycle and was hit by a driver who fled the scene. Someone brought my son home with injuries to his collarbone and plenty of scrapes and bruises. That day, my brother-in-law, who was a doctor, had come to visit. Twice he had stood up to leave, then without explanation, he sat down again. He was standing to leave when the people brought my injured son home. My brother-in-law attended to him and took the boy to the hospital. He gave him medical care and even bought the medicines that my son needed. Then he brought my son back home. He told me, I hadn't planned to stay long this morning, but something or someone told me to stay. Now I understand that the voice I heard was God's. Yes, I can truly say that God is my husband. He provides for me and cares for me. My children are his, and I give him all the glory for taking me, a young widow, through a difficult time into victory in his name. To God be the glory. The 13th Sabbath offering for this quarter is going to the West Central Africa Division. The offering will help to build a special youth multipurpose centre at Babcock University in Nigeria and a Seventh-day Adventist Mission Academy in the country of Gabon. Thank you for supporting Mission through your generous offerings. And this was written by Elise Quet, who lives and works in Uende in Cameroon. Have a great Sabbath. This lesson was read by Dr. Percy Harrell. It was recorded in the studios of Christian Services for the Blind. This podcast is brought to you by the Sabbath School Department and through the services of Hope Channel.